One of my favorite writings is this. As we're getting older, I think all of us can appreciate that. Lord, you know better than I know myself that I'm getting older and will someday be old. Keep me from getting talkative, particularly from the fatal habit of thinking that I must say something on every subject and on every occasion. Release me from craving to straighten out everybody's affairs. With my vast store of wisdom, it seems a pity not to use it all. But you know, Lord, that I want friends, a few friends, in the end. Don't you love that? I ask for grace enough to listen to the tales of others' pains. Seal my lips on my own aches and pains. They are increasing and my love of rehearsing them is becoming sweeter as the years go by. I dare not ask for improved memory, but for a growing humility. Teach me the glorious lesson that occasionally it is possible that I may be mistaken. Keep me reasonably sweet. I don't want to be a saint. Some of them are so hard to live with. But a sour old woman is one of the crowning works of the devil. Don't you love it? Written by a 17th century nun. Though humorous, we can all identify that. We hope that as the years go by, we've gained some wisdom and patience and graciousness. But one thing is certain. Every one of us here has a deepening concern for the upcoming generations. I grew up in the 60s. Hippies, free love, Woodstock, psychedelic art. And I remember the older people saying, uh, shook their heads and say, it can't get any worse than this. But I believe it has. I believe that our youth and young families are facing issues that many of us never dreamed of. And so today, I, I would just like to simply talk about the peril that they face and the prayers that we should make. And the peril that they face is not five years out, not five months, but the next five minutes. Why? Because it used to be that convictions um, shaped and impacted culture. But today it seems far more real that culture is shaping convictions. I love what J.B. Phillips wrote in his book, Letters to Young Christians, when he wrote about Romans 12.1. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Mm. I, I, I don't think the world is squeezing. I think the world is crushing. Crushing us into its mold. And if there is ever a time for all of us to stand strong for what we know and what we believe, I believe the time is now. Outside the church... Is seen so vividly. A few, last month, Al Mohler used the great 
statement in his wonderful sermon, the irrationality that is going on in our society. I'm going to make that a little stronger in my mind and say the insanity that is going on in our society. In Tennessee, pamphlets were handed out to seven-year-olds on the use of condoms and girls were being informed about IUDs. In Canada, a teacher says that boys and girls are not real. You need to use the word them and they. Mark was telling us that at Sutton Middle School where he goes, and they serve breakfast to the students, and he was teaching the guys that they needed to serve the girls and be proper manners. And one man said, well, how do we know that they're girls? Recently, I had a young man over to our house for dinner. And he lives in North Carolina. And the third grade bathrooms now are neutral. Uh, neutral letting the students choose the sex with which they identify with, not what they are, third graders. Recently, a professor was sued by a student because when he would address the class in the university, he would say, Mr. or Miss or Mrs. But he called on one student and said, Mr. And the student sued the professor because he did not believe that he was a male. And I'm sitting there and saying, what is going on? Prager University follower on November 6th went to the University of California, Berkeley, which we all know is quite liberal. And so he asked the question, how many genders are there? The answer was, one person said, infinite. You can define yourself by whatever you want. One student answered, well, five or six, maybe 72 or something like that. Last month at the Roman Colosseum where Christians gave their life in defense of their faith and were sacrificed to the pleasing audience of the Roman society, there was a statue to Molech, the Canaanite god of child sacrifice, erected in front of the Colosseum. And so I read about Molech and the child sacrifices that were made. And I, I've seen quite a bit of stuff in my life, but I don't think I ever felt the sick pit in my stomach as I read what parents did to sacrifice their children to that God. And yet it was erected in front of the Roman Colosseum. I just shook my head and said, what in the world is going on? But sadly to say, I don't believe it's just outside the family of God, outside in society. I think there are trends that are creeping very subtly into the church, the family of God. Over the years, 
I, I, I've come to four characteristics that I identify in my mind that sets apart a group of believers as a cult. The first one is that they rely on non-biblical revelation or extra-biblical revelation, not just God's Word. The second one is that they deny the person and work of Jesus Christ. The third one is that there's basically a a works salvation. You you have to do something in order to gain God's favor and, and go to heaven. The fourth one is an authoritative leader-savior for the last days. The apocalyptic mentality and our leader is going to save the world. I had firsthand experience with that with the Church Universal and Triumphant that moved from Malibu, California and bought a large ranch right down the road. And she declared that at such and such a date, the world was going to end. And these people bought survivor bunkers, and they built survivor bunkers. And uh, her husband was convicted in Spokane, Washington, for buying machine guns. And they were going to take on the world. And that day came. And guess what? We're still here. And I thought to myself... How easy it is for people to be sucked in to that concept. These these people were smart people, attorneys, doctors, sucked into apocalyptic mentality. But sadly, I, I think there's almost like a Christian cult mentality that is creeping into the church What do you mean? Non-biblical revelation. Michael said some staggering statistics a few weeks ago that only 18% of Christians read their Bible on a regular basis. 18%. If that is the case, then everybody is having the mentality, I will decide what's true. No, No absolute authority I'll create my own sense of reality. I'll do and believe and think what I think is right. A few weeks ago, Dr. Yusuf said the statement, we have moved from a thinking society to a feeling society. How often have you heard the statement, well, what do you think? Maybe that's been replaced. In many cases, it has been replaced with, well, what do you feel? You see, when you have an idea, everybody can have an idea. There's there's nothing wrong with that. And lots of people have opinions, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But a conviction is a truth and a belief that can be substantiated by an outside source for its credibility. That's a conviction. This says, I believe based upon this authoritative standard, I can have this belief system or this belief thought. I can have this conviction because it is based on a substantial 
authoritative source of truth. It is outside of your own mind. So how many Christians are falling for non-biblical revelation? One of the guys in STS said, well, you know, many students just say, well, it's, it's, it's what I think. It's what I think. How many adults are creating their own sense of reality for beliefs rather than an outside authoritative source? The second thing I see creeping in is the dilution of the person and work of Christ. John MacArthur in his commentary on Hebrews says this great statement. Someone has said that Jesus Christ came from the bosom of the Father to the bosom of a woman. He put on humanity that we might put on divinity. He became son of man that we might become sons of God. He was born contrary to the laws of nature, lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity, and only once crossed the boundary of the land in which he was born, and that in his childhood. He had no wealth or influence and had neither training nor education in the world's schools. His relatives were inconspicuous and uninfluential. In infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book. And yet all the libraries of the world could not hold the books about him. Never wrote a song. Yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all songwriters together. He never founded a college, yet all the schools together cannot boast as many students as he has. He never practiced medicine, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors have healed broken bodies. This Jesus Christ is the star of astronomy, the rock of geology, the lion and the lamb of zoology, the harmonizer of all discords, and the healer of all diseases. Throughout history, great men have come and gone, yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. And the grave could not hold him. That is the Jesus Christ of Scripture's. There is another trend I see creeping into the church. It's called theistic moral deism. It's a concept that God exists and he created the world. God wants people to be nice or to do nice things for people. The goal is to be happy, to feel good, to feel good about yourself. God doesn't need to be involved unless I need him. And all good people go to heaven. You ever heard of that concept before? I have. 
The fourth thing that seems to be creeping in is that mentality that that leader the savior for the last days you say well who's the leader oh uh, the concept is i am the leader i have greater knowledge as one of the gentlemen said in sts knowledge is power but the issue is where are they getting the knowledge the internet fake news What's the source of their knowledge? Social media? I have greater knowledge than other people. Narcissism is at an all-time high. So if that's the peril that is being faced in society, what kind of prayers are we to make? Pray for their mindset. For the, the believer to have the spiritual strength to stand on biblical convictions. Why? Because we see society crushing, squeezing, molding minds. Sometimes there's a redefining of sin. Redefining of, I just want to be happy. I don't care about being holy. I'm supposed to represent Christ. Oh. Is the fact that maybe I am to present Christ to others and that's to be a purpose that God gave us in the Great Commission? Oh, oh okay. Has there been a loss of influence of the Holy Spirit's power in the life of the believer? Pray for their mindset. Recently, a friend of ours went through cancer treatment. And it was interesting that the treatment that he chose targeted the very DNA of his cells. And the treatment was successful. And I thought to myself, we need to be praying targeted prayers, targeted prayers for every believer, for the DNA makeup of every believer. And so I thought to myself, what would we be praying? Is it, Lord, just be with, as I put in the bulletin this morning, that, that's it? Lord, be with Bill. Lord, be with Mary. That's all. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And in that passage, I believe the Apostle Paul gives us some instructions of what we are to pray. He says here, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it's only fitting. Because your faith is greatly enlarged and your love for each other of you toward one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for you. For your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And in that passage, I think Paul 
says four things. That their faith would be growing. That their faith, their faithfulness to God would be growing. That they would be receiving truth. What what a great, I I am technologically absolutely illiterate. That's a given. My son was telling me stuff last night on the iPhone. I go, "Uh uh uh-huh, yep, good, great. Praise God, I don't have any idea. But there's all kinds of opportunity out there with podcasts and, and reading materials and listening materials that, that per- people would receive the truth and they would understand the truths and they would apply the truths and they would obey the truths that are presented. That their faith would be growing. He says here that their love would be engaging. That concept of community that TJ has been so strong about and that's been the focus of the church this year. Well, community together, you can't do it by yourself. He said, love engaging towards one another. That each of you would do that. That each of us would have that sacrificial agape love in serving other members of the body of Christ. Every believer. That it would continually grow. I love this word grow. It's the concept of a flood. That it would overflow its boundaries. That our love for one another would overflow boundaries and we would show that sacrificial love as we are in community one with another. Well, we need to have that faithfulness upward, that love outward. But there's something else. Verse 4, he said that their perseverance would be increasing in the midst of persecutions. I have to be honest with you, I... I can't remember a time when there's been such open verbal attacks, mockery, accusations, insults, belittling of those who call themselves believers in Jesus Christ. Needless to say, the the persecutions that are over the world as our brothers and sisters in Christ are, are, are sacrificing in foreign countries. The word perseverance, I looked it up in the dictionary. I love it. One who does not swerve from his deliberate purpose and loyalty to the faith. Oh, that's a good statement. One who does not swerve from his deliberate purpose and loyalty to the faith. And just as there might be persecutions outside, there's also the word trials inwardly. That concept of trials is the pressing together, the squeezing, the pressures to compromise beliefs and standards in order to be accommodating or accepted by others. That's real. That their perseverance would be increasing. To stand strong for Christ. In the midst of persecutions and in the midst of afflictions and trials. 
The fourth thing that he prays for is that their testimony would be encouraging. You and I have prayed for others. And it is a wonderful thing when we hear of someone saying, hey, you know, he was godly, he was gracious, he was equipped that when someone asked him of the hope of the reason that was in him, he answered with fear towards God and meekness towards men. And it's encouraging to see other saints stand for that. And you've have prayed maybe for a long time for Billy or Bob or Jane or Mary or Susie or whoever it was. And then you get that little nugget of truth. Said, Man, thank you, Lord. Thank you for answering my prayers. Thank you, Lord, for working in their life. Thank you, Lord. I, I can remember when I grew up, I uh, grew up in Wichita, Kansas, and the church we went with, we would meet on Wednesday night for a prayer meeting and all the boys would go downstairs into the basement and we had a leader by the name of Mr. Livingston. We'll never forget it. And all of us boys would kind of giggle and punch each other during their prayer time and quietness and then we had to pray in a line and then we'd always say like, Lord, be with, be with Bill. And that was it. And yet I remember Mr. Livingston pouring out his heart for us guys. And so the prayers that we make, we pray for their mindset. But we have a model of how to pray. If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians 4.12. And there's a wonderful man there by the name of Epaphras. He's the one who developed and founded the church at Colossae. And in this verse, it says this, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greeting, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are at Laodicea and Heropolis. And I'm indebted to Warren Wiersbe as he put this verse in proper perspective in his writing. And he said, five things are seen in verse 12. He prayed constantly, the word always, on his mind, in his mindset, not an occasional flippant, oh yeah, Lord, be, yeah, oh yeah, don't forget, oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I got to remember that, in his mind. Secondly, he prayed fervently, laboring, heartfelt, intensity, deeply, personally. He also, as I said, he prayed personally for you, for you. Targeted prayers. He prayed definitely what that they would know and do God's will that they would be maturing in their faith, not lacking in anything in their walk with Christ, but they would have their life fulfilled in Jesus Christ and what God wanted them to do. And last of all, he prayed sacrificially. The word is he agonized in prayer. John H. Jowett said this, praying that costs nothing accomplishes 
nothing. Powerful statement. I think of Nate, 16-year-old junior high in high school, model student, quiet, smart, boy scout. He had a girlfriend. He didn't bother anybody until last month. 16 seconds, Nathan Burhow pulled out a gun and shot two students in Saugus High School. 16 seconds. And I thought we're living in an age of such quiet desperation. We're living in an age of so many having confused mindsets. We're living in an age of so much rage and anger. People attacking others for incredibly stupid reasons. Simple things. And so I said to myself, how should we pray? Then I said to myself, no, how will I pray for the mindset of the upcoming generations? I know what I'm going to pray. I know what I must be praying, that their faith would be growing, that their love would be engaging, that their perseverance would be increasing, and that their testimonies would be encouraging, that my prayers would be far more than just, Lord, be with. I trust, no, mm mm-mm. Our prayer is not just, I trust that they will be more than Lord be with. I pray that they will be more like Lord. Pray that their faith would be growing. Lord, I pray that their love would be engaging. Lord, I pray that their perseverance would be increasing. Lord, I pray that their testimony would be encouraging to others. Not our prayers would be Lord with. I trust not. Because they must not. Let's pray. Lord God, you have put those things in Scripture for a definite reason, a definite purpose. And oh God, mm, may each and every one of us pick, pick a person by name and pray that type of prayer for them. In your name we pray.